my weekly's magical flying bookshop your feel-good fiction podcast sponsored by pavers pop on your favorite pair of slippers curl up in the comfiest chair and listen to your favorite authors chat away in my weekly's magical flying bookshop landing wherever you are so come on in and join me claire gill our bookshop host as we hear from one of my weekly's favorite authors like any good story there are three parts to our podcast in the first chapter we kick off with a short story or an extract from our guest's latest book the middle chatty chapter is quiz the author where the author answers all your questions followed by book post our final cozy chapter with a roundup of the hotly tipped book of the week this week we are joined by the talented dorothy coomson multi-award winning best-selling author dorothy has had hit after hit now she's back with her 17th novel i know what you've done Described as Britain's best-selling black author of British fiction with a master's degree in journalism, her first book to hit the shelves was The Cupid Effect. She spent two years living in Australia and then returned to Brighton to be by the sea, of which she says a good walk by the seafront helps clear your head or to work out the knots in a plot. Known for thrillers with insight, suspense is her thing. Hello Dorothy, come in and welcome to the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. It's lovely to have you here. Hello, thanks for inviting me. Lovely to be here. Chapter One, Reading Corner. Make yourself at home with a comfy chair and cuppa as Dorothy reads you an extract from her latest book, I Know What You've Done. My Weekly prides itself on its fabulous fiction. Take it away, Dorothy. Okay, thank you. I Know What You've Done. Prologue. Priscilla. May 2021. Brighton. I know who's going to do it. That is, I know the person most likely to kill me. I'm not sure how, but I do know why, and I do know it's going to be soon. Should I tell someone? Probably. But who will leave me? Until it happens, no one will care. And therein lies my problem. Until I'm dead, or as close to dead as I can be, no one will believe my life is in danger. They'll think it's all petty jealousies, problems best talked out over tea and biscuits. They will not see the bigger picture until it's splattered with my blood and stained with the crocodile tears of those who mean me harm. Then there'll be investigations. Then they'll be pulling out all the stops to uncover the truth. Until then, I know that someone is coming to kill me. I know who. I know why. I know soon. I just don't know how or exactly when. This is what happens when you know what people have done. Danger stalks your every breath. Would I do it again? Probably. It's not like I could change who I am. So this is it. My declaration. I know who is going to kill me. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it doesn't happen or I hope that I can find a way to outwit them. That is all I have. Hope. Plain old hope. Will it be enough? Part 1. Ray. 11 Acacia Villas. 1st June 2021. Brighton. Knock, knock, knock. 
Loud and unexpected, the bang at my front door makes me jump. Knock, knock, knock. Comes again, louder this time. That should technically be impossible, since the brass door knocker, something unique and beautiful when we got it six years ago, has pretty much rusted into place and hasn't been properly lifted in the last couple of years. Knock, 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 knock. All right, all right, I mumble, more irritated at the noise than the fact that they are taken away from my deadline. I've been fighting all week. Knock, 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 knock. It genuinely sounds like whoever is on the other side of my door is properly trying to enter my house via the door knocker. Knock, 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 knock. There is no need for all of that. Is teetering murderously on my tongue when I yank open the door. But it evaporates when I see he was on the other side. Priscilla. I draw back. Priscilla is my neighbour who lives at number 21 to our 11 Acacia Villas. And I could not be more surprised to see her standing there. I've spoken to her a couple of times, maybe, when I'm delivering her stuff that's been sent to our house by mistake and a couple of times at our neighbourhood watch meetings. We live in a well-to-do area of Brighton and a lot of people are well-spoken. But even amongst them, Priscilla is in a different league. Her clothes are always bespoke or casually designer. Her black, grey and white hair is cut into the sharpest bob. Her makeup is always perfectly applied. Smoky eyes, glossy coloured lips, flawless foundation and she is always, always scented to perfection. From the moment I met her, I knew she held herself above us. Not just from looking at her, but also from the way she would respond to anyone saying hello to her. She would look at you, ever so slightly lift her chin, so slightly you'd barely notice. They'd offer a short, curt nod before moving on. Even at the neighbourhood watch meetings, where I got the chance to speak to her for more than two seconds, it was highly controlled. She swept in, spoke to each person in turn, asking a few questions, often making pointed and unsettling comments, then moving on to someone else. By the time the person who had called the meeting had stood up to talk, Priscilla would have spoken to everyone, settled with no one, and made sure she left before the end. That is why I'm confused about her being on my doorstep. What could she possibly want with me? Hello? I asked cautiously. Priscilla lives by herself in one of the biggest houses on Acacia Villas. She's older than me, but with what I'm sure is a lifetime of expensive products and a commitment to skincare, her pale cream complexion makes her look younger than my 48. Although, as my eyes sweep over her, I have to admit I've never seen her looking like this before. Her usually pristine clothes are dishevelled. Her hallmark bob is a bird's nest halo of messiness. Her eye makeup is like a pattern smudged under her eyes, while her trademark glossy lipstick, today's gloss colour, is pink, is smeared from her mouth to her right cheek. Are you all right? I ask, worried and a little scared. Why is she here? Bots through my head again. I know what you've done, she gasps, her voice laboured, as if speaking is difficult, arduous, painful. What did you say? I reply. Instead of replying... She sways dramatically on her pink-heeled shoes and I realise all of a sudden that all it will take is for her weight to be off balance for a moment too long and she'll topple backwards down the stone steps leading up to our front door, possibly breaking something on the way. Priscilla pants and gasps a while longer before saying, 
I know what you've done. I know what all of you have done. She suddenly thrusts what she's holding in her arms at me. And it takes me a moment to work out what it is. A book, a large blue hardback notebook. But this one is thick, the cover battered and worn. Pieces of paper stuffed into its pages, bulking it out even more. It's all in here. It's all there. I know what you've all been up to. What are you talking about? I ask her, not taking the book she is holding out to me. What's going on? Thank you, Dorothy. What a thrilling extract there that you've read for us. We hope you're enjoying My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Whether you're curled up at home in your favourite pair of slippers or listening as you stroll in the perfect pair of comfortable shoes. We're sponsored by Pavers, the family-run shoe company founded by Kathy Paver in 1971. Oh, happy 50th birthday, Pavers. With hundreds of styles available for women and men, Pavers prides himself on having a wide range of sizes available, 1 to 10 for women and 6 to 14 for men, as well as a huge range of widths for each size and style, all so that you can find your perfect style. And you can feel good about shopping there too. Pavers is the first major shoe retailer to achieve carbon neutral international certification and has given away more than a million pounds to date through the Pavers Foundation, where employees can apply for grants for their local community. Plus, until the end of August 2022, My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop listeners can get free delivery. Just quote Weekly 1, that's W-E-E-K-L-Y 1, as in the number 1, when you order. So whether you're tucked up at home, out for a walk, heading into the office, or dressing up for a special occasion, find your perfect style at pavers.co.uk. That's P-A-V-E-R-S dot co dot uk. Now, let me top up my tea and then let's get back to the episode. Chapter 2. Quiz the Author This is the chapter where you get to quiz your favourite author. And don't forget, you can send in your questions for future guests. Leave a voicemail on 01382 575 486 or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk or just send an email to that address with your question. Follow us on social media to find out who are our next guests Or head over to our website, www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I've just selected from our bookshelves your latest book, I Know What You've Done, soon to be out in paperback. There are whispers about your 18th out in 2022. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's talk about this amazing 17th book. The blurb is as enticing as the book. What if all your neighbours' secrets landed in a diary on your doorstep? What if the woman who gave it to you left for dead by one of the people in the diary? What if the police asked if you knew anything? Would you hand over the book of secrets? Or would you try to find out what everyone had done? Do you know what your neighbours are really capable of? What if your neighbours knew all your secrets? These are the questions you raise when you put the spotlight on the fictitious residential neighbourhood of Acacia Villas. So in a nutshell, what is I Know What You've Done? about well it's about it's about your life and neighbors and how we've kind of all 
we've become very interesting though. We spent a whole year, nearly a year and a half, surrounded by our neighbours and getting to know our neighbours in different ways. And this book is about a woman who receives a knock on the door one afternoon and her very posh neighbour is standing there who then thrusts the book at her and says, I know what you've all done before she collapses. And um, Ray, the woman who receives this book, realises very quickly that Priscilla, her neighbour, has been keeping tabs on everybody else in the neighbourhood and has been writing down what they've got up to and their secrets in this book. And um, because she's collapsed and she's rushed to hospital very near death, um, Ray is kind of in this dilemma. Does she hand the book over to the police to see if the police can find out who tried to kill Priscilla? Or does she keep it and try to find out what everyone has done? Because... um, when she flicks through it, she spots her husband's name in there and she absolutely loves her husband, but then discovers that he's been up to something and seeing somebody that he really shouldn't be. So um, she's in this dilemma and it's a dilemma book and it's a what we've all been through together book. Um, it's all different types of things, but that's what it, that's what the main thrust is. Would you, if you found all your neighbor's secrets out, would you hand it over to the police or would you try and investigate the crime and your neighbours yourself? And as you say, you know, the novel focuses on a hotbed of lies, truths and neighbourhood secrets surrounding the Neighbours to Neighbours group, you know, a neighbourhood watch group. Um, And it's full of liaisons. Um, In fact, one of the characters says relationships hanging in the balance, all these people going to prison. And it shows such an array of vivid characters. I want to know, where did you get your inspiration from these characters from? I think Ray says, who knew Acacia Villas was a hotbed of criminality? Uh, Because she found out all these things that her neighbours have done. I didn't get the inspiration from my neighbours, I have to say that. I have to keep saying that because my neighbours are lovely. And I don't think I've been writing books about them. Or I've I've been spying on them, which I have not been doing at all. Um, it's just where every else thing else comes from. You kind of you hear things, you see things, you imagine things, and you kind of put it all together. Um, I think, as I said, you know, when we were in lockdown, and I know lots of people don't like to talk about it, but when we were in lockdown, we saw a lot of our neighbours. We saw them leaving the house to go for walks or go for runs, or you know, you just looked inside their houses, and you could you know, when they were sitting there doing things. So we were all out at various points doing things like clapping. Um, so you get, to, you get to see your neighbours in a different way and you get to see, I think you actually get to realise that they are human beings as well, beyond sort of like hearing them take their bins out or beyond seeing them going off to the station in the mornings. You kind of realise that they have this whole life that you're kind of a part of, but you're not a part of, you know, you're a part of but apart from as well so um that's what the heart of the book is about this you you are literally living with people who are complete strangers but they're also kind of part of your direct world I think it is that isn't it? it's that sense of community that everyone is in the same place for a long period of time which hasn't really happened has it or everybody going around you know their daily jobs were you involved in your own neighborhood watch group and I want to know have your neighbors actually read it I, as I said, nothing to do with my neighbours. They're all lovely people and they're all wonderful. And I wouldn't dream of writing a book about any of them. I know one of my neighbours has read it um, and she she enjoyed it very much. She wrote me a note saying how much she enjoyed it. Um, 
I think another one of my neighbours has the book. I don't know if she's read it. Um, she probably has and probably hates it. So she's not said anything at all. Um, but I don't know about my name. Anybody else, if anybody else has written it, read it. But, um, you know, like I say, it's all fictional. I wouldn't dream of writing about my neighbours at all. Well, not the ones I live with now. Maybe the old ones. <laughs> oh, there's a story. Um you obviously wrote during lockdown and I think your dedication at the beginning of the book is really poignant. You say, for all of us, however, we made it through. How was writing during lockdown where you can't go out and get your usual inspiration? And as an author, you're used to working at home or wherever you write, but you can't go and get those sources that perhaps you would do usually. Did you find it a challenge or did you find it gave you a sense of sort of solace when you were writing? It was hard last year. I think lockdown was hard on everybody. And um, just because we agreed with it, for example, I agreed with lockdown. I thought it was necessary. And um, just because I agreed with it and a lot of other things that have been put in place doesn't mean I like it. Doesn't mean I I, was, I thought it was a wonderful thing. Or And I think a lot of people forget that, that a lot of us, we that's that's why I dedicated it to us, however we made it through, because it was hard for everybody. And for me, it was, it was particularly difficult because I had a book that came out in lockdown and we'd been planning on doing a tour, going on sort of visiting different cities in the UK and then discovered obviously we couldn't do that. And, and all the bookshops were closed, so it's really hard. But also before that, I had set my book, my I said All My Lies Are True in my previous book in 2020, not knowing that 2020 was going to serve us up this life of being inside. So I had to write a dedication at the front of it, a little explainer, disclaimer type thing saying, look, it wasn't meant to be like this. And, um, and so the book came out and it did fine. So we were just kind of recovering from that. We're getting used to it, you know, with the whole trying to find food and going out, trying to get stuff. And uh, we've got two dogs as well in lockdown. Just before lockdown, was it, they weren't lockdown dogs. We decided to get them. We'd been to see them um, three or four weeks before lockdown happened. And then we could see which way it was going. So my husband went and got them. And so we had these two dogs, which are, they're great, but they're mad. Um, they're just these wild things. They're, they're really funny. They've got their own little personalities, which is why I put them in the book because they are very much a part of our lives now. And then, um, and then the, all the George Floyd stuff happened, which was just another. It's like, oh, okay, so I've got to deal with this now. Which uh, the sort of the whole world went crazy again, and I had a lot of stress around that to do with work as well. You know, finally seeing and being admitting that. The world, the publishing world isn't as exciting and welcoming and open and inclusive as the world would like us to believe. So, yeah, by the time we got to sort of this time last year in 2020, I was done. But I had a book to deliver. So it was very hard. It was very hard. I had to keep going. I had to keep at it. And sometimes I would just sit there. I want to cry because it felt so hard and it was so difficult. So, yeah, it wasn't great, some parts of it. Some parts of it, I was like, I'm fine. Let's go on. Everything's cool. And other parts, I was like, no, this is too hard. And I, I can only admit that now, a year later. At the time, I just kind of 
was constantly going, it's fine, everything's fine, we can do this. And now I look back and I think, yeah, it wasn't fine at all. It was really, it was really quite hard going. And I know a lot of people, particularly a lot of um, my black friends, it was just doubly hard. It was just on top of it, on top of everything else we had that to deal with. And we had almost like a reckoning with a lot of the people you work with, who you've put up with a lot of stuff with. And suddenly it was in their faces, especially people who were kind of suddenly saying how supportive they were and how they believed in in this, this and this. And you were like, you literally weren't. I know, I've known so many times when you weren't supportive and that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to kind of deal with, constantly having to, having it in your, in your face as it were. So writing lockdown wasn't great, but I wrote a book and I like my book. Other people have liked my book, so it can't have been all bad. That's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was this open letter that you wrote to the publishing industry um, and shining a light on the lack of representation within publishing. Publishing likes to talk. They like to talk as much as they like to publish books and they like to talk about they want to change this and want to change that and nothing's changed. And it's one of those things they can keep talking about it until someone's actually willing to commit to doing things. Do you think your open letter made any difference or what was the kind of feedback that you had from that, the open letter to the publishing industry? I had a lot of positive feedback. What really broke my heart was that I had a lot of people in my inboxes, people who worked in publishing, black people and people of colour in publishing, who basically told me this is like, yeah, this is what my experience has been like on the other side of it, you know, being ignored, being treated badly. And I had other people, young people, older people, people who wanted to break into the industry asking me if it was worth it, you know, should I bother trying to get into publishing because if this is what I'm going to be up against and you know that breaks my heart that I have to that me be honest often results in other people thinking that they're just going to come up against all this racism and tokenism and people just being terrible to them but with a smile on their face so um the response was good I hope things have changed I I hope things are changing. Things haven't changed. I hope things are changing. I think I hope people are having more honest conversations. But it is over a year ago, and I have seen small bits of change in different bits, but not huge change. Not that one letter is going to change anything really, or much. I want to go back to your book, and I want to ask: your books always have such an intricate plot, and you always have me on edge and you almost annoy me because you have me thinking things that don't happen and it is you know it just gets you do you start at the end of the plot and work backwards or do you start at the beginning or do you just not bother planning I know we had Anne Cleves on last week and she doesn't plan you know she she said that so how do you do it where do you start please tell me because it's been on my mind <laughs> um that's the thing I I'm not a a huge plotter I have an idea of the story in my head and I will start where that story begins in the sense of sometimes that beginning where that story begins for me is in the middle of the book so I'll start writing the middle of the book or I'll start writing the scenes that have come into my head and then I'll kind of go forwards or go backwards go back to the beginning of the book or go to the end of the book um I I do at certain points become kind of a plotter in the sense that I'll get my post-it notes, my trusty post-it notes, and I'll write down 
on post-it notes what's happened, what scenes are happening, what scenes need to happen. And then I'll put them on my notice board and I'll switch it around to see what needs to happen where. But it horrifies a lot of authors when I say that I don't start at the beginning and I don't finish at the end. I sometimes write the end first. It depends on the book. It really does depend on the book. With um, I Know What You've Done, I, I knew how it began, but I didn't write the beginning, first of all. It was more the beginning, middle bit, where um, with the machinations with uh, Ray and what happens with the book and the other people she gets involved with and the other stories that are kind of woven into the story of this book that this this book that kind of holds it all together and the fact that Ray has the book that holds it all together and the secrets that come out from it. Um, so I don't, I very rarely start at the end and just kind of go back and go, oh, actually, I want the story to lead up to here. I, yeah, it's mainly the middle I start with. Although, you know, in the past that has come back to haunt me, as it were, because I've, I've, one of my books in particular it used to be called The Flames of Love, and now it's called That Day You Left. Um, I'd written a lot of the end, and I was very certain about how it's going to end. And then I went back to write up to that point, and I realized that that ending wouldn't work anymore. So I kind of, I spoke to a couple of people, my agent and my editor went, so if this was a scenario, would this happen? They were like, not really. And I was like, oh. So I had to unpick the whole of that ending. So I needed some of it and then go back and start writing, write that ending again. So that was double the work. Um, with the Rose Petal Beach, that was so long. I had to cut out, I think it was about 50,000 words I had to cut out for the Rose Petal Beach because it's just too long. Um, with um, The Women Love Before, we I'd had this whole scenario of, because it's about a woman who's, it starts off, she's in a car crash and she has this scar and she has some injuries. And so I wrote all this thing and it was all very, it's all very set. And then I started reading another book, someone else's book. And I was like, oh, she's got exactly the same scar. I can't write that bit anymore. So I had to rewrite that bit. And then I sent it off to a doctor to check the medical part of it. And she rang me up and she went, yeah, she'd be dead. So I had to, I had to rewrite that bit as well. So yeah, not, not writing in order does, doesn't work for me sometimes. It does kind of get me. What an interesting insight, Dorothy. Just before we go on to our readers' questions, I want to talk to you about these endings because there is a lot of people who have beef with you for not actually making it a sense of completion. I know you're laughing here because you're causing heartache sometimes for your readers and you've said that you give them not what they want but what the characters need. So you, you're kind of doing the characters justice instead of tying it up all nicely. And, you know, we keep coming back and reading your books because we love them. But you do keep throwing these endings in. I don't even think the word ending is is the correct word here. Why do you do this to us? Because it's what the character in the story needs. And if you read the book and you go on the journey with them, you know, you might want the nice tied up ending but the reality is their lives need the ending that they have you know not the ending that they want so it's like life isn't it 
You might want to be able to eat lots of chocolate and have no effect, but that doesn't happen. You need to kind of balance it out with other things. So I'm sorry if, well, actually I'm not that sorry. Um, it's unfortunate if you don't get the ending that you want, but you get the ending that you need. But I think that's good for you. Like your vitamins, it's good for you. Fair enough, Dorothy. So we're going to shoot to some readers' questions. So the first one we've had on Twitter, Louise Stowell has said, um, a question for Dorothy. How do you plan the murders in your books? Do you always know who did it um, or do you discover it along the way? Um, I often discover it along the way. I remember with the Ice Cream Girls, which was my first emotional thriller, which was like a, a thriller book that focused more on the emotions and the lives of the people affected by the crime rather than the actual detection of the crime. Um, I had two suspects, two people who could have killed um, Marcus, the guy who ends up, he, well, he ends up, he begins the story dead, is being killed by either Poppy, or, Poppy and um, Serena have been put on trial for his murder. And I didn't know which one of them did it because they both had very valid reasons to have done it if they, if they did. Um, so I started writing it. I was thinking I'll just, I'll work it out as long as it, as it goes along. And as I did, as I told their story, and it's told from both their points of view. So at certain points you hear, you see something happen from the other person's point of view. So you kind of realize that they are seeing things completely differently. And sometimes they're seeing some things exactly the same. As I was writing it, I kind of realized which one of them had to have done it. Um, so yeah, I don't actually plan out the murders. It's just when I have an idea about something, I'll think, oh, what if, for example, with, um, I know what you've done. I remember looking out my window and seeing all the way down my, because the way my house is positioned, I could see all the way down my road. And as I said, most people are in, so their windows, their blinds and curtains were open. And I was like, wow. I can see into people's houses from here. I don't look at people's houses. I just want to reiterate that for my neighbours. But I could if I wanted to. And I thought, what if, you know, I was one of those people who started writing, keeping a, uh, tabs on my neighbours. And then someone realises that I've been keeping tabs on them. And so they tried to kill me. And then what if I gave that book to somebody else and they ended up having to try and solve my crime, my um, the crime against me. So that's how that murder crime kind of came about it wasn't me sat there going right I want to kill off a woman called Priscilla because she's a bit nosy um so it kind of comes with the plot with the story the what if comes first of all what if this happened and then to make it interesting to sort of up the stakes I have to find a way to have somebody be hurt or imprisoned or you know something Da, 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 happened to them all the way through, so, uh, part way through. Brilliant. Thank you, Dorothy. And I think we're going to have an audio clip now. We've got a question from Cordell. My question is, you've come up with some brilliant titles. The Chocolate Run, Marshmallows for Breakfast, The Brighton Mermaid. I know what you've done. All my lies are true. If you had to give yourself a title, what would it be? Wow, that's a question I've never been asked before. Now, what title would I give myself? That's a really tricky one, isn't it? It is a tricky one. Probably, um, it might be something like, she knows what you've done. 
because I'm always sat there going, I know that. I know who did that. My husband really hates watching television with me because um, I'm almost always guessing <laughs> who did it. I remember one time he's watching something that he wouldn't let me watch with him because I ruined the things for him apparently. And he told me about it. And then he was going to watch the last episode. And I went, well, clearly it's such and such. <laughs> and he went to watch it. He came back. He was so mad because <laughs> was right I hadn't even watched it and I'd guessed who it was so probably maybe um maybe I'll call myself the know-it-all yeah that'd be a good one brilliant I think you know you know these plots don't you that's why you can see it come in when it comes so and um, we've got another audio question as well from Jackie from Surrey I've got well actually two questions for Dorothy Coombs and I hope that is okay um one of them is was the first book of that do you remember reading um, and were you a big reader when you were a child? But secondly, and more uh, randomly, um, if you had a boat, what would you name it? I would call my boat The Cupid Effect after my first book, for definite. And I was a huge reader as a child, so I actually don't remember the first books I read. I remember reading so much and I'll see books sometimes and recommended for children. I go, oh, I read that. I remember reading that. And I remember reading this. And I remember reading that. I do remember being slightly obsessed with the Garden Gang series by Jane Fisher because she was so young when she started writing them and illustrating them. And that kind of spurred me on to thinking, well, if she can do it, I can do it. Um, so, yeah, I loved reading. I used to go to the library every day after school. And that's why I think libraries are so important for communities because we could never afford to buy the amount of books that I read. Um, and that's why I think libraries are really important so that children who can't, they're kind of a leveler for all, all communities, aren't they? They make books accessible to everybody. Um, so yeah, I was a huge reader. So yes, my first, my boat we've called The Cupid Effect. And yes, I was a huge reader when I was young. I'm so with you on the libraries. We used to go and I used to go every Saturday and it's where I got my books from. And um, there used to be a fish in there called Bob the Fish <laughs> in Heath Hayes Library. And uh, I was, you know, when I was little, I, I thought that he would be reading the books as well, you know, and choosing them. But it, it's such a special place, isn't it? And it's so important. It really is. It made me get where I am now, really, by having that access to books. So it's interesting to hear you know that's a similar story resonating with you so we've got a few more questions we've got one from Tracy uh, Mackenzie Scott from Derbyshire and she says you have lived in various different cities did you find that the character of the city influenced the stories you were writing and if so how oh absolutely I think it's really important to base your stories somewhere that you've lived and you've understood because each city is so different I mean Leeds and London, and though London, it feels like lots of cities in London sort of put together to make this place called London. And Brighton, those are the three main places I've lived. And obviously I've lived in Sydney, but they're all very different. They always have a very different heart to them almost and a different soul. And um, yeah, so for me, it's really important to have lived in somewhere where, you know, that I can kind of translate onto the page. They become part of the character of the books. And my earlier books are setting leads deliberately because although I grew up in London, I'm from London and you know, London's my home city and I love it. A lot of the books that I used to love to read were all set in London. And the UK is so much bigger than London. And I just wanted to set a book that was a commercial book, a, a popular fiction book away from London so that 
and talk about it, not in a place where like I'm trying to explain it or trying to make, teach people about somewhere that's not London, but to set it in a place and to have that person live there and it be normal to live there. So yeah, I absolutely, um, I wanted my books to be not London centric. A lot of my characters come from London, but they all end up moving to somewhere else and becoming a part of that city and the city becomes part of their story. I mean, I know what you've done. Ray and her family leave London and they've lived in Brighton for six years. Um, and that is part of their lives now. And that's part of the story. The story, I don't think the story would have worked as well in London or in other cities because of the way Brighton is set up, the the, the architecture and the space of London, of Brighton. So um, yeah, they become part of the story they become an, almost like another character in my stories. Excellent. I've got um, another question from Ushma. She said that a central theme in many of your books is around identity and belonging. Has your own experience ever been a source of inspiration for any of your characters? Um, probably yes and no. I write about people and people have a lot of things in common. We have a lot of more things in common than to separate us, I think. And that sense of belonging, wanting to belong, I think is really important for a lot of people. Even the people who feel like outsiders are defining themselves as outsiders by not being or feeling like they belong to a group. Um, I would say like The Cupid Effect, my first book, is probably the book that's most like me. And a lot of people do end up writing their first main character does end up being most like them. You know, she she does crazy things like I used to do and she's obsessed with TV programs and um, and it's very much my humour, the things that she says and does. So, yeah, I put myself into my books, but I also put lots of little clues about my life and the things I like in my books. For example, in Marshmallows for Breakfast, my fourth book, um, the main characters live on Tennant Road because that's the point when I was obsessed with Doctor Who, David Tennant's Doctor Who. So I, I named a road after him. So I do that sort of thing all the way through, all the way through my books. There are those little hints about the things that I enjoy and like in my life. I did wonder that. That's brilliant. It's been confirmed. I knew it <laughs> when I was reading through. And that must be so much fun to be able to do that and just plonk these things in where you like, you know. Absolutely. You can always you can usually tell what, I, what I'm watching whilst I'm writing the book because a lot of the characters will have a name or two from the TV show that I'm watching. Fabulous. I love that. And now I'm sure all our listeners and readers will be going through them going, there's another one. That's what she's done there. Um, just got two more questions left. Um, I am super excited about your new novel in 2022, My Other Husband. I've seen the trailer. Can you tell us anything? Are you allowed to tell us like a little smidgen about it? Uh not really, but I can tell you that um, it's not going the way I expected. I had the idea of the story in my head. It's very different from that. But it's it's kind of, you know, the trailer is is kind of representative of what it is. But, um, but this woman who, you know, she can't tell anybody about her other husband. But, you know, I don't want to spoil it for you. I don't want you to kind of, because I think... Speaking of titles, it took us ages to find the title about and to kind of get to something that wouldn't be too much of a giveaway and wouldn't be too obscure. So we've kind of 
almost give it a bit of the plot away by calling it my other husband. So, um, yeah, I don't want to spoil it for you. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to come to it and read it and enjoy it and then be really upset about the ending. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> it will be one of your books if it wasn't, so that's good. The last thing I want to ask before we go into chapter three is, I heard that you do a different dance per book release. So I want to know, is it the same dance that you do every time, a bit like when a footballer scored a goal, you know, and they have their thing that they do? Or is it a different dance per book? It's it's more dance when I've submitted it. It's like the, ha-ha. Because when I worked in magazines, um, I used to be a magazine editor and I was a production editor for a long time. And whenever we sent the magazine, we'd be like, oh, we've done it. It's gone. And I would put on... Um, Ricky Martin's uh, Living the Vida Loca and I'd do the dance in the office and so that kind of stuck to when the book's gone I'd do I'd do a dance so it's yeah it's, it's similar dance I'm not a TikToker I'm not I'm not you know how do I come up with all these these theory, these uh, routines and stuff um but hey but I was probably the first I was probably the first TikToker wasn't I with a dance <laughs> <laughs> with a dance that is out there maybe I should actually I'm gonna proper I'm gonna find a proper one and me and you Claire we could learn the TikTok once I finish my other husband we'll do a TikTok dance together we'll get one and we'll really sit on TikToks together I'm up for we? that Dorothy I do a bit of Zumba I've got a few moves there and I'm <laughs> sure you've got some moves as well hey that'd be good I am up for that I really am so thanks so much, Dorothy, for these amazing answers and all our listeners' brilliant questions as well. Remember to email in your questions for all the big authors coming up on the podcast. Go to www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts to find out who's up next. And of course, send those questions to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk. After all this author insight, you're sure to be itching to read I Know What You've Done. Don't forget you can swipe down to the episode notes to buy your copy. Chapter 3, Book Post. Here we are in our final chapter with author Dorothy Coombson, the chapter where we reveal our hotly tipped book of the week. After writhing through our stacks, the book that has made it through the My Weekly Magical Bookshop letterbox this week is The Lies You Told by Harriet Tice. As always, we promise not to reveal any spoilers, but just enough to entice you to read. Let's take a look at the blurb. Can you tell the truth from the lies? Sadie loves her daughter and will do anything to keep her safe. She can't tell her why she had to leave home so quickly. She can't tell her why she hates being back in her dead mother's house and can't tell her the truth about the school Robin's set to start at. She just wants to get their lives back on track. Even lies with the best intentions can have deadly consequences. Ooh, Dorothy, the first thing I will say is there are as many plots. There are so many plots in this, but it's really riveting. But you have to concentrate it. It can't be one of those books where you've got half an eye on the telly and half an eye on the book. Please tell me, why did you decide to pick this book? It's one of those books that I've had on my bookshelf for ages um, and on my on my audio list, my audio library, as it's called. And my husband actually read Harriet's first book, Blood Orange, and he really liked it. And I thought, oh, well, I'll give another one of her books a read. So when I was looking for it, I thought, actually, I'll try this one. And I'm really glad I did because it is, like you say, there's lots of different 
strands of plots and it, it kind of it goes to everywhere and I what I really love about it is the courtroom drama stuff I do like a courtroom drama and a British courtroom drama because I watch a lot of TV programs that American you know courtroom dramas and you get to see how they work but you don't really know how, I don't really know how British ones work so it's very good to see how uh, they work in this book it's great I love a good like I say I like a good courtroom drama and also you don't know who is lying and who isn't lying um, I mean, I've just suspected everybody at, at some points of different things, not of just one thing, but of all different things I've suspected everybody. That's it. I mean, there are so many plots in it. And talking mm. about the legal side of it, Harriet's got that experience, that legal background. How essential do you think it is to have that authentic voice, to have that actual, you know, that was her career prior to being an author? So is that something that you think you really need to know your stuff for? I know you said you check out the medical side of it sometimes, but for legal stuff? Um, I don't think you necessarily need to be have done that job to make it accurate but I think you do need to do as much as you can to be authentic and that's what I think with all writing if you're writing about something outside your experience you need to do everything you can to be as authentic as possible you kind of also admit if you've got it wrong if people tell you you've got it wrong and and you know just admit it just say I did my best and as, as long as you go into it writing knowing that you've done the best you can to be as authentic as possible then you know there's nothing else you could do so I don't necessarily think you need to be a lawyer or whatever to write a courtroom drama but you do need to speak to people who have been in court to see what it's actually like having said that I remember with um the Brighton Mermaid there's a there's a point where the character is kind of kidnapped and bundled into the back of a car of a people carrier and so I got one of my friends with a people carrier to drive me around I was like lay on the bottom on the floor of her of her car while they uh, while she drove me around <laughs> so that I could get a sense of what what it was like to do that so you know maybe a bit beyond what most people would do for research but you know I don't think necessarily you need to, to go that far or need to sort of like retrain to do that job to write about it but you know, do the best you can to be authentic, I think. And I think, you know, these, we've got the legal side of the plot, but we've also got this um, spotlight, if you like, on parenting, the helicopter parents, the pressurised parents, the bullying, actually, Robin and both mum Sadie having this sort of bullying from the mums at school or the children at school. And that idea of survival of the fittest that comes through this kind of domestic noir that, you know, that what you have to do to succeed for your offspring at all costs. How did you find that particular storyline? I, I found it quite I thought it was quite um, authentic in the sense of, I think in all walks of life, we have this competition. Um, there's a couple of of lines and a couple of scenes where the resentment and the, between each, um, between each person, you know, which group of person, the, the working mothers and the non-working mothers and and how they see each other in such, confronting and almost disparaging ways as well you know there's a there's a line about oh that's what those mothers who have too much time on their hands do and the other people I don't think you care about your kids enough because you work it's there isn't it there's that rivalry between two different factions of people so different um and I know 
when I used to work in an office, sometimes there is, I mean, I didn't have any resentment because, you know, I'm, I'm very much a live and let live person. You can do whatever you like, but the resentment there was sometimes between smokers and non-smokers because smokers got to have five, 10 minutes extra time in a day to go out and have a cigarette, whereas non-smokers did. Do you know what I mean? It's that, it's that thing that's there. And I think she captures that rivalry there is between different types of people really well in that sort of, um, in that sense of, oh, I've, my way of doing things is the only way there is to do things. And, and also, you know, with the court case and stuff and not, no spoilers, I'm not a spoiler person, I'm not a spoilery person. Um, but with the court cases, there's a very heavy emphasis on parenting as well there and how the parents are failing or supporting their kids. So I thought it was really interesting the whole um that whole dynamic both of them the whole parenting thing but also the the different factions of people who are in exactly the same essentially the same situation but they define themselves very differently and I don't know if you got this because I certainly really related to the sort of comments about the PTFA you know the parents association and how you know mothers particularly at the school gates asked but I actually found a little bit of humor in there there's this humor throughout it not naming any names I could actually think in my head well that is like that person that I know you know with characters and how important do you think it is to balance out a thriller with these tiny little bits of humor peppered through as well just to lighten it up a little bit oh I think it's really important well for me my particular type of storytelling I know other people that don't seem to have a problem with just being ah all the way through um I um with my books I always try and balance it out I try and balance the humor out I mean in I know what you've done it's very obvious with the there's jokes all the way through and they're silly sort of childish jokes but they're there because I need to write humor into my books and I also but for me as well, I go beyond that. So I try and put a romance in there as well as the suspense to balance it out, to kind of lighten the burden, as it were, of this thriller story. But, it, and I think it's important, it's, it's an important skill. You can be really heavy handed and just like plonking bits of humour or you can subtly have it all working all the way through while still dialing up the tension. So yeah, I think it's, it makes for a more enjoyable experience, reading experience, I think. And also it's part of life, isn't it? A life isn't all one. I hope no one's life is like a thread all the time. But it's it's not um, it's not one note. You don't have a one note life. And so with writing, I think it's really important. I think the books that are, are better are the ones that will have a, a, a touch of humour as well as, you know, the scary, sinister side of them. That's very true. And you know what else is, it appears quite difficult and you will know this, gosh, how many books you've written. But this was Harriet's second book. So she'd had great success, obviously, with Blood Orange. How difficult is it to deliver that second book? Can you think back to that time when you had to do that and get such critical acclaim when you've done it already? Does that doubt sort of creep in as an author? Well, for me, my no one read my first book. Well, so people read my first book. I'm only joking. Actually, quite a lot of people read my first book, surprisingly, considering it had very little advertising and very little... Um, money thrown at it was as it were to to get it out there so for my first two books I didn't have that much pressure um particularly my first book I wrote on speculation my second book I'd been writing it when I had the idea for the first book 
So I had no real pressure. But the third book, I wrote that and it did phenomenally well. It just did amazingly well. And um, and after that, you kind of go, yeah, it's the fear. I'm kind of go, <gasps> do I write? How do I, what do I write next? Because so many people love My Best Friend's Girl. So many pe- people still now even tell me it's their favorite book. And some people say, oh, it's my favorite book of all time. And I say, that's lovely. But it's also quite, <laughs> so I you know, I kind of taught myself not to worry about what other people think. I want readers to enjoy my book, but I can't sit there and think about them once I'm telling a story because I would never write a thing because all the way through Marshmallows, I had to stop myself. I had to get to the point where I said, stop this. Because thinking, oh, would they like this? They like that, but they like this. Would they like, oh, I don't think they'll like this. Oh, is this too close to the bone or this? And I thought, stop it. Just tell the story you're going to tell. So yeah, it can be really crippling. And to have that much success really early on can be really crippling as well, especially because as I talk about in my podcast, which is for people who want to get into publishing, um, sometimes a book won't do well. And you've got to, and you're, if you're confronted with that, having had huge amounts of success, it can be really scary. And you can think, I'm never going to write another book that anyone's going to like again. It's not true. You can do it. You just got to get up and do it. But yes, it can be really quite scary um, at a certain point. So, and, you know, I think she did, she did a great job with this book. I didn't read the first one. Like I said, my husband read it. So I thought I'd try this one. Um, but I think she did a great job. It's definitely one of those books where you are guessing all the way through. And like you said, you're thinking, well, it's them, it's them. This is, you know, and so it is like that carrot being dangled all the way through, I think, with this one. So thanks so much, Dorothy, for picking such an explosive book. And if you listeners want to grab a copy, then don't forget to swipe down to episode notes. Thank you, Dorothy, for popping into the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. Do drop by and see us again. Time at My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop has come to an end for this episode. Join us next time for more big name authors, stories and extracts read just for you and our favourite book recommendations landing wherever you are. Whether you're out with the dogs, in a pair of sturdy walking shoes, heading into work or cosied up at home in your comfiest slippers. If you love fiction, cooking and interviews with your favourite celebrities, then you'll love My Weekly. And as a listener to The Magical Flying Bookshop, you can try 13 issues of the print or digital magazine for just £6. Head to myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts or call 0800 318 846 and quote the offer code MWPOD. That's MWPOD to save more than 60% on the cover price. Check the episode notes for details and terms. That's all for now. Pick up your copy of My Weekly and escape with our fiction stories. And until you pop into the bookshop again, have a wonderful booktastic week. I'm Claire Gill and this was My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, sponsored by Pavers, your perfect style. <laughs>